Hello, and welcome to this episode of Hammering Down, presented to you by Birmingham Sports. I'm your host, Kaylor Hodges. I'm hoping you're having a great one. In this episode, I am joined by Can I Kick It's uh, host, Mr. Elliot Barr. He He's just awesome. You need to go listen to that podcast. It's seriously one of my favorites out there. It's probably the best just content out there going in the United States right now. It's so good. We talk about uh, a lot of diversity stuff. I mean, finding diversity in football in America, uh, it's it's a super important topic. And it's one that I've especially been thinking about a lot since our conversation we had with Mr. Mikey Lopez. And I don't think there's anybody better out there to talk about this than Elliot. I'm going to quit talking because uh, he can do all the talking for me. He's fantastic. Um, yeah, go ahead, get yourself a nice big cup of Red Diamond coffee or tea, and let's get into it. All right, welcome to this episode of Hammering Down. I'm your host, Kayla Hodges, and I am being joined by a very special guest, an awesome content creator, uh, one of the, I guess, Richmond Originals. One of the greatest content creators out there, Mr. Elliot Barr. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you? It's a good pleasure to be on here. Hey, I can't complain. So <laughs> you do a lot of podcasts. You do a lot of content creation. The one that is the most influential to me is your series uh, called Can I Kick It? Can you explain a little bit of what that is? Um, so Can I Kick It is pretty much a how can you describe it? A docu-podcast. Um, pretty much we take documentary documentary style, um, like how you watch movies or TV shows, and we put it in podcast form. So what we'll do is um, we take players from the Black diaspora, um, Africa, the Caribbeans, um, Americans, and we pretty much highlight their career on and off the field um, and their impact. And we kind of go into the rabbit hole of like what if scenarios or you know, what is the lasting impact of this person? Or if this happened, this could have happened. Um, so that's what the fo- podcast is really all focused on. It's really like a history style podcast. So that way you not only learn about the player that you might not or you might not have known of or someone that you might have heard of before, but you need to know more. Or you also learn about like possible scenarios that's happened because of this player style. So I guess a good example on how you'd like dive into deep what ifs and all that kind of stuff. You released a podcast yesterday on the Ireland versus France and you started going down. If, if you don't really understand what I'm talking about, basically an infamous handball, which uh, Elliot talks about in detail at the end of this one's not viewed in a great light, like all the rest of the infamous handballs are. And it talk, he talked about uh, why he got so much hate as opposed to someone like Maradona or, you know, Luis Suarez, you know, someone like those guys, why he got more hate than them. And also how this, A, kick-started the VAR movement, and it started the uh, – oh, gosh, I'm blanking now – and how it started the – the French national team of actually becoming dominant as opposed to completely falling apart. That was a really interesting listen. Um, how did you come across the Ireland uh, handball, uh, Ireland versus France handball situation? And why did you choose to do an episode on that? 
Um, so we decided that season two, we wanted to do more moments that stuck out in black history in soccer. So we came up with some of the ones that we could just think of at the top of our head, like Tiare's handball, um, uh, Obi Makani's transfer between Chelsea and Man United, moments like that, or like individual uh, points in history. So Tiare was obviously the first one. Um, and his was so significant because it was something that when I first got into soccer, I've heard about it, but I never really knew what it was about, like what what really made it, you know, be this big, huge moment. Um, so it was interesting to kind of see and look through the lens of history to see, like, how was it written about, what were people saying about it? But then also you also get the perspective, like you said, of like the what if factors, like the domino effects he's had. Because like we said on the podcast, like Joe said, if Terry Henry doesn't have the handball here, you probably have the incident, you know, further down the line. Like we are, VAR is going to happen. It's just at this moment now, it kind of just click starts it all. It's kind of like the push that it needed. But now like you also think about like the French national team. Like if the French national team doesn't qualify for the 2010 World Cup, do they start to rebuild a lot earlier or do they kind of, stick with the same squad and then be like, hey, all right, we're going to try this older older squad now for the 2014 World Cup. So it kind of makes you – you sit there and think, you're like, man, like, because of this happened, this happened, and this happened. So it, it really makes you think. Yeah, you're – at the very beginning, I guess, you are talking about how you've done, I guess, multiple se- uh, seasons of this. And – the one of the other seasons, it's a fairly, I guess, on the later episodes, but it's one of my fa- favorites. Uh, I want to say it wrong. It's the Maryside, Maryland, Maryside Derby, uh, Orlando Pirates, and I can never pronounce the other. Oh, the Sawato uh, Derby. Yes. Yes, yeah, uh, uh, between Orlando Pirates and Kaiser Chiefs of yes. South, South Africa. Yeah. Yes, and it was such an interesting listen because you were talking about how uh, African culture and how football uh, can, can really embrace that. And I, when you said that, I started really thinking about it. And this has been, I listened to that podcast when you released it, probably the day of. And ever <laughs> since then, it's just been stuck in my mind of how little, um, at least especially in America, football culture embraces uh, the African culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and except for, uh, I guess you would call it the grassroots, your league one USL and lower, that seems to be a real hotbed for, for embracing African culture. I mean, Maryland Bobcats is completely minority owned and there's a real influence there, but you don't really see that at the top, like MLS and even a lot of the USL championship. What is that like, uh, for you as a black man who? has been supporting soccer and, and playing soccer for all your life? Oh, it's great to see. It's great to see people of like my culture and my race kind of start now to be making that transition phase from just being players to now being owners. Like if you look at all the major sports in America, soccer is probably the easiest one to get into and own because you're not like in a protected, you don't need like a certain tax bracket to get into it. Like NFL, you have to be a billionaire. There's no way around it. Um, and you have to be, like, on one of the two clubs. Soccer, you can create your own club with uh, 15 other people, and there you go. Um, 
the reason why you don't see African culture as much being brought into American soccer culture is because a lot of Americans look at themselves and they want to emulate what they see on TV. They see South South Africa, I mean South American, <laughs> and they see Europe. That's what they see. So they're like, oh, I want to emulate that. And you don't really have a whole bunch of eyes on Africa. There's no one's fault on it. I mean, finding an African game on TV is darn near impossible unless you have being sports. And even then, that's impossible. So it's very hard to see. But then all, the other point about it is, is that African-Americans or even Africans aren't the vocal point when it comes to soccer clubs in America, like MLS and some of those upper USL championship teams. They're looking to more, and I, I don't blame them for it, but they're looking more to recruit who they know and what they know. You know, they're going to go to places where they feel comfortable at. And those places aren't normally where places where African-Americans are at. Now, when you start coming down the ladder a little bit more, your NISAs, your USL League One clubs, UPSL, things of those nature, they're, they recruit more based on community and who they know. And more than likely, they probably are in the groups more around African-Americans. It is a lot easier for us to get in there and kind of affect our own culture. Is it something that it's something that happens organically also as well? So you're kind of talking about like who they know and, you know, going to places they know. There's a book I'm blanking on the author, <laughs> but it's called uh, Made in Africa. Mm-hmm. And it's it was featured on a TIFO uh, podcast a while back, but I read it and it's basically telling the stories of African players making their way to big European clubs and the struggles that they faced. And one of the big ones was it's it's so it's uncomfortable to read about I and mean, it's there's just no way around it, but it's the people in the big European clubs, they just viewed africa as less civilized they didn't view it as built up no infrastructure and if there is no quote-unquote civilization then they surely couldn't be good at our beautiful game our prestigious game and unfortunately that really seems like it translated over to america because like you said we're trying to emulate what the europeans do and i think having players like uh, sadio mane have really opened the eyes of a lot of clubs that you know african players can be great that he doesn't have to just be some random german wonder kid anymore but is that something that you have i guess read or heard before is that that's kind of that that imperialistic big-headed mindset and that's how people kind of look at it oh yeah 100 percent. i mean definitely when you look at media how they describe Black players, um, I mean, we can even talk about how they describe, you know, pure African players versus Black players that are in European countries, but just Black players in general, they describe them mostly as fast, pacey, powerful. That's always how they describe them, like Sadio Mane. Like, Sadio Mane is probably one of the most technically gifted players out there, but the only thing you will hear about him is he's pacey, he's fast, you know? <laughs> That's how they describe Black players. They don't ever... It's always described how our, how we are physically, not how we are mentally. Um, and, and some of that is based on ignorance because and a lot of soccer fans here in America, even though the game is new to us, we what we see is how we think about the game. 
you know. The, oh, the black player is really fast. Okay, well, he's good. <laughs> oh, the technical players are usually all white. Oh, okay. So then you start associating yourself based on that. It's, it's ignorance. And that ignorance in a way of like, I'm trying to say you're being stupid, but ignorance in a way of like you haven't challenged yourself to to dive deeper and think about it. Um, but when it comes, I, I, I've experienced it as well, you know, like, because I used to play football. So I was an offensive lineman. So it's like when these recruiting coaches would come in and talk to you, they'll be like, oh, you're very powerful. You're, you know, you're quick on your feet, but it'd be physical. But it would never be like, oh, you read the game really well. Oh, you understand the exit zones. Oh, you see the play before it happens. They would never describe you as that versus our, counter, my, our counterparts where they would describe them as, oh, he sees the game on the next level. He looks at it like this. So that's normally how it happens. But I've experienced it before. You're talking about American football. And I think it's so funny because you always hear, especially when you're looking at the NFL or a high-level college, you'll hear, especially the white wide receivers, it's always like, oh, first one in, last one out, coach's son, always – you yeah. know, so smart at the game. And then it's always, I mean, look at someone like Tyree Kill. It's like, he's a cheetah. Look at how fast he is, you know? And it's never, look at how smart, look at how he fills zones. Look at how he can read a defense and find the open space. I mean, yeah, what you're saying is so true. And it's even past soccer, which is insane to me. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, I, at first, I used to get annoyed with it and mad with it because I'm like, you know, black players are more than just we're, we're more than than just physically. You know, we're very intelligent at this game because in order to play soccer, like you have to anticipate two, three moves ahead. You know, because like I play pickup soccer, I'm a center back. I have to anticipate what the fullback's going to do, what the what the goalkeeper is going to do, what the defensive man is going to do. Make sure that the center back beside me knows what he needs to do, and like I have to process all all that stuff. But it's one of those things to where I think the education of it needs to be done. But, uh, like, it's getting better. It's trending in the right direction. But it's still a lot of education that needs to be done. Uh, you mentioned the media. And I feel like I would be doing a disservice if I didn't mention it. Um, but I'm going to mispronounce his last name. But I really don't care because he doesn't deserve the respect. But <laughs> Seth Yawn or whatever his name is. And yeah. that situation with U.S. soccer – for me, I was appalled. I was like, there's no way this person is really saying all this. And then I go and start reading some some content creators in the U.S. soccer world, especially ones who who are black or of, of, of other races. And almost every single person is, I don't know why you're shocked. This happens all the time. Is that something that's really like that? Because yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not trying to. I'm not laughing at you. I'm, I'm not. I'm laughing more in like the th- thought of like you're reading it. I'm like, yeah, I said that. Oh, <laughs> um, but yeah, and that we're not saying like shocked is like you know you shouldn't feel any way about it. We're saying shocked is like this is something that happens on the regular, and particularly in the self. Like what he said, none of it's wrong. You know, I mean, what he said is wrong, but well, the yeah. way he, like he's emotional. <laughs> His response to it and not being intelligent in what he was speaking or articulating is not wrong. You know, those kind of language, those kind of code words are said every day throughout the workforce to African-Americans, every day in colleges, every day when we're going to the store. 
you know? It, it, when you talk to African-Americans and say, like, we want to get into certain job fields, it's always, it feels like there's a ceiling above us because there's people there that look at us as, like, that doesn't value us, you know? Um, in particular, it's the same thing that a lot of us have been saying about U.S. soccer, about how they'll market, they want to market towards us. They want to have us do these things for them. They want to us to be the, the bridge that brings them into the black community. But then when it comes time for them to step up and show that they have our backs, they're kind of like, well, we don't know. We don't know if we can do that. It was, you know, case in point this past summer where a lot of these Cubs, you know, for all intents and purposes, made a post about Black Lives Matter or lack thereof or George Floyd. And then when it came time for Juneteenth, they were quiet, you know? My whole thing is, instead I have, I, I will say this, I respect him because now I know where he stands. And, and that's my whole thing about it is, I don't care what your ideology is like if you're racist you're racist if you're anti-racist <laughs> it is what it is because i can stay up here all day blue in the face of you and tell you i don't like cheese but if i go around the corner and eat cheese then what's the point of me saying it to you you know yeah so it's all about the actions that you say you know your actions speak louder than your words chef showed with his actions and his words that he doesn't care about minorities. He doesn't care about those that are trying to build the game up in grassroots movement. He doesn't care about, you know, the women's side of the game or other people or other religions, you know? And those are the kind of gatekeepers that U.S. soccer have a hard time of saying, we don't want you in this sport because let's be real, U.S. soccer was built by gatekeepers. It was built by not, not by fans, not by, you know, the people. It was built by this collective one percenters of this is what we wanted it to be. This is how we're going to do it. You know, the, <clears throat> this was something else I, I thought about for a while, and I was going to bring it up, and I think this is a perfect segue, but you're talking about, like, the one percenters, and you even mentioned, you know, Every club made a post, I mean, some clubs excluding, and a lot of people noticed, rightfully so. Um, but it doesn't, if, at least to me, I don't, this is just what I've noticed. It only seems like they embrace African culture when it, when it financially benefits them. I mean, and it seems like they're more uncomfortable to embrace Black culture because I've noticed almost every club, they'll have a, They'll have a Spanish Twitter account. They'll make all sorts of merch that is Spanish. And then when it comes down to just if even if you want to do the bare minimum and just make the one post on, you know, Juneteenth, nothing. There's just nothing there. Why is that not being embraced more? Because African, well, to answer your first question about when it comes to uh, like the Hispanic culture things like that like more every club in america should have a spanish account like there's well, yes. no yeah <laughs> yeah there, there's no reason why it's not a thing um but when it comes to african-americans I, I, to be real with you we're not looked at as a high profitable group you know we're looked at as the minority within the minority you know <clears throat> like 
I've heard of soccer execs say, you know, pretty much we want we want to get the, you know, get the white middle middle group, the white middle class, get the Hispanic population there because those are the ones that are looked at as they're educated about the game, right? You know, and then when it comes to black people, it's kind of just like we get the scraps, you know, we get the leftovers, we get the pickings, and I, I, that really needs to change because there's a lot of African Americans in America that love the game. It's just that their clubs doesn't love them. Right. And, you know, for instance, like I love the Richmond Kickers and they've been doing a lot better, but I still appreciate I still tell them all the time, like, we can go so much, we can do so much more in the city of Richmond that you guys just have to be open to doing it. And the thing is, is like a lot of these clubs expect people to meet them where they're at. But you can't do that with a group that's not that has never been embracing the game of soccer like that before. You know, this isn't like peewee football or basketball where my aunts and uncles knows about it. You know, they might not watch the game, but they can tell you about basketball and football. You know, with soccer, you have to go meet these people in these communities and make an impactful change. You know, it's not just something where you can just throw money at the situation and be like, well, we tried. Yeah, because nothing's going to get fixed. You have to make a, a considerable effort. You have to tr- you have to go out there and really put yourself out there and be like, all right, we're going to try this for a complete year, whether it's like a youth program or after school program or anything like that. But it, it's the same thing when these clubs go out here and they make changes to season tickets, for instance. They will already have a, a prepared statement telling you why we're increasing season tickets because they know they're going to get backlash on it. Why not take that same energy when it comes to a lot of these community programs? And when you question these clubs or these supporter groups on, you know, why they're, why why is the lack of interest there in the black community or why is the lack of funding there to go into the black community and try to invest people into these games? Because let's be real, a lot of these soccer clubs are in areas that are highly populated black areas. Yep. You know? Look, every club in the South is near a black community. I don't care where it is. From Tennessee to North Carolina, South Carolina, it's near a black community. And when you go question them, a lot of them will say, well, we do our community work. We want to, you know, we don't need to get the shine for it. And they'll tell you that statement, but then they'll go out here, spend three, four hundred three three four thousand dollars on a kit release that looked like a, a white t-shirt you know <laughs> and it's just like it like it doesn't make sense it, it doesn't make sense you know it, that's that's why it's important not only for us you know as black people to voice those opinions on soccer twitter but it's also important for y'all like for others for other races to speak about it because and i'll, I'll be real and say it like for white people to say they're allies, it takes more to say you are just an ally. Yep. You know, you have to show it with action. And not just about, like, just yelling, but also saying, like, you know, it's unfair. When, when you see injustices like that, when it comes to – I'll throw out a team out there. Um, Chattanooga uh, – Charlotte, Charlotte MLS. Right. Started Black History Month. They didn't say anything got to the very end of the month, they started doing something, but it's like, you guys waited to the very end of the month to do something where you had the entire month 
to build this positive referee. When it came to the PSLs, y'all was on it. Y'all was ready to throw it out there. Y'all was ready to throw out prices. Y'all had responses ready. But when it came to Black History Month, it was, oh, we'll wait. We'll do it on the 20th. But that's the time when, you know, the white supporters, because the black supporter voices is probably going to be one out of 100. Right. But the white white people, like, be real. And America is the majority. Is the majority. If they speak out, I guarantee you it gets heard more and it gets heard quicker. And the response is a lot is going to be a lot quicker because y'all carry y'all carrying most of the wealth for those clubs. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there and I completely, (laughs) I completely agree. I mean, so my, I'm still in college, but I go into schools all the time because I'm, I am training. I am learning to be a teacher. That is what I'm planning to do. And I'm a teacher too. Really? What do you teach? Uh, 12th grade social studies. Good stuff. That's social studies was always my favorite, (laughs) my favorite subject. I'm doing music ed, right? And my favorite schools I go to are the low SES or uh, low socioeconomic schools. Mm -hmm. And it's, and most of those kids, because the stuff I bring in, they're, they're like, oh, we've never experienced that before or we've never played on this kind of instrument before, or we've never done that before because a, someone didn't want to spend the money on doing it or b some of those teachers, I hate saying it. Once you're in there for a while, some of them just stop caring because they're like, all right, well, like you said, we tried, we, we, we asked the students to meet us instead of me meeting them. And it's sometimes all the kids need, and this is anybody, it's just someone to show that they care about them. And then, and that says a lot whenever I'm talking to a kid who is six years old and I brought in a day where I played guitar and I sang a song that was in Spanish. Right. And I had kids come up to me, which I was the only white person in the room. I mean, the, the, cl- the closest skin color to me was this, was this little kid who was from Guatemala who came up to me. Right. <laughs> and he, and he was just like, we never had a teacher even sing something remotely Spanish before. We never even had a teacher try to do that for us. And I feel like it's the same with soccer in America is that we have all these people that say we want to make an effort and they'll make a small effort and be like, well, that didn't work. We give up. Yeah, man. It's funny because if you look at teaching and soccer, there's so many parallels between the two. There's so many parallels. Like, like you said, like when you go into those lower economic schools and whatnot, you know, the resources aren't there, but majority of the teachers and granted, like they get burnt out a lot quicker because the resources aren't there, but they will bust their ass. Yes. To try to make ends meet for those students, for those kids. But the other thing about it is, it is not upon the, how can I say it? It's not, a, it's not upon the teachers. And, grant, and I'm not saying the teachers shouldn't be trying at all. It's not upon the teachers to try to make ends meet because you're already doing a whole bunch as a teacher. Right. It's a put the school districts to try to be like, we got to make sure we give these kids every opportunity that we can. Now, I will say this. 
if you give a kid every opportunity in the world to succeed and they choose not to take it, that's all no. You can't do nothing about it. You can't make a horse drink water. But you have to try. And just because it didn't work with one person or one select group does not mean you don't keep trying. You know? Just because you went to like a lot of these soccer, just because you try to get this one black person and they was like, eh, no, I'm good, doesn't mean you don't go to the rest, you know? So bringing it to, I guess, soccer and the Birmingham area for us, uh, probably about two, three weeks ago, um, I interviewed the president of the club for Birmingham Legion. And I asked him, I was like, what are you planning to do for the community? I feel like that's that's the big part, especially if you're in a higher tier, like the championship or MLS. And he was talking about how they're going to bring in free after-school programs for kids to learn and play soccer. And he's going to make – and the big point of that was free because so many students, not even – or or so many kids, no matter the race, just get priced out. Yeah. And – it, which is so unfortunate. And I think that's one thing that I'm going to stay on the club and make sure that it happens in some capacity, because that's a promise that needs to be kept. I mean, there needs to be less processing out, at least get people with fans involved. Another club that's starting, I think they got announced last year and they're starting soon. It's FC Birmingham. They're, uh, in NPSL, uh, there's so many the NSLs, whatever. <laughs> they're one of them, and they they're planning to play all their games at uh, Carver High, I believe, which is a predominantly black school, which I think is just the exposure of knowing that you have a semi-professional team playing at your stadium is enough to get uh, somebody to go at least once. Yeah, that's. That's that's like in that's intentional action, you know. Like there's an intent behind playing behind the school, even though if they don't think about it, is an intent behind it. Because like you said, like there's a kid in that high school that might, I don't know, wants to go into business marketing or wants to go into social media or management or something, and they're like, well, the school council will be like, well, hey, look, we got to send my pro team here. I could try to partner with them and make a connection. It, like those are intentional actions. And like the case of your club, you know, if they're doing a free after school program, keep like push that because like you're right. Like a lot of kids get priced out of this game way too early, way too quick. And then they wonder why like it's so hard to get people back into the sport is because they got priced out of it by the time, like they were trying to figure out what sport they loved or what sport they liked. you know, like I coach high school girls soccer and I can't tell you like how many girls on my team are like, I'm a basketball player. First I'm playing soccer for a condition. They're not playing soccer because they love soccer. They're playing it because they're like, I just want to run. I just need to run and stay in shape. <laughs> but that's the thing about it. it. It comes down to like those intentional actions of you have to be intent with your words. It's all great to just say it, but the actions behind it are going to would speak louder and leave impactful moments for the next generations to come. I mean, yeah, like you're talking about your girls who are who are like, oh, I'm a basketball player. Some might be like, oh, I'm a softball player, whatever, right? 
and you'll have but later down the line give them about 10 10 even less than that whenever they graduate they'll see a game on tv and be like oh i played that position like oh that i see why they did that because they play they have a little appreciation for it in the music world i mean in college i'll have people come up to me because i'm down at the university of alabama and i'm in band here and I'll have someone down on the quad or whatever on a big game day. And they'll be like, oh, I played the trumpet back in high school. Like, I remember being, doing this. I remember doing that. Did they keep doing it after they after they finished? No. Like, there's a reason that they're talking about how they did in high school or middle school. But they still appreciate it because they had that little bit of exposure to it. And that's mm-hmm. all that matters. It's just getting people exposure. Yeah, it's that's all you do. You never realize who you impact you know, directly or indirectly, unless you do it, unless you do it, man, that's all. And a lot of these things for these clubs is like, they think if they don't make money from it or if they can't sell something from it, then there's no point of doing it. And that, that way of thinking is, is horrible, you know? A lot of the best things that come in life and when you do it just from your heart and you're not expecting anything in return. Like this part, like, can I kick it? For instance, I know that I'm never going to make enough money from Can I Kick It to pay my mortgage. (laughs) It's not going to happen, you know? But I think about it in terms of this. If there is someone out there that can learn from my podcast, that can enjoy it, and then, you know, open their mind to what, you know, Black people go through in America or throughout the world, and understand, like, damn, like this is what really happens. Then it's all I'm all for it. I'm all for it. <laughs> well, see, that's kind of uh, why your podcast made just made such a big impact on me. Is which, by the way, if you haven't listened to Can I Kick It, stop listening to this one and go w- listen to his podcast now. Like it's <laughs> so good. And what I appreciate about it is that there's like you said you you're teaching history you said it in the podcast before that you view can i kick it as a history first podcast and i it's it's broken down in a way where it's simple for everybody to understand they can understand the gravity of each situation and that's what i've taken away from it is that whenever i listen to it i'm like man this is a person who is living in the South, just like I am. This is a person who follows the same exact sport that I do. And he's having a completely different life experience than I am. And that it just opens your eyes. And even if it's another, if it's a younger kid, if it's a young black kid who hears this, maybe let's say 10 years down the line, and they're listening to back to the old podcast, Though hopefully the dream is that they're going to be like, oh, I've never experienced that before. So, you know, a lot of what you're doing, I feel like is not just telling the history, but also documenting what's happening now. So hopefully it doesn't age well in the future where it's like, well, that never happened for me. Yeah. And that's only I think we do a real good job. Me and Shanera do of our podcast is that not only do we link it, we give you the past and the facts of what happened, but we also link it to like, present day moments and we try to give you like that full 360 version of you know the past is this is what happened the present is the present moment and this is what can happen in the future so that's what we want to do in each episode you know we do it better than sometimes than others but normally all the time we want to give you all three perspectives so that way you leave the episode with like 
oh man that, that was really good <laughs> for sure so i'm gonna uh i'm gonna change topics just a little bit uh okay. this is something i've seen you talk about a little bit on social media recently river city 93 follow him on twitter um and it was the the zlatan and lebron situation what uh if you don't know what happened basically zlatan gave the roundabout way of shut up and dribble except yeah. worse because he's also an athlete what for someone i know the way i felt about it i thought it was ignorant i thought it was dumb and just short-sighted but for someone who sports became a way for i think maybe i'm wrong here correct me if i'm wrong but like african-americans to get their voice out there because most sports are dominated by black voices right now which is a good thing and so for him to say stop talking about this what did that come off to you as um someone that sits in a position of like you said, someone that sits in a position of ignorance is someone that sits in a position of elitism, you know? And what, what I say this is, like, I want you to, for your listeners who don't know, I am a Manchester United fan, okay. you know? Like, I started following the club in da, la, 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 la. 2014, Louis Van Gaal's first year. So I went through the Zlatan phase. When I, like, my wife, is a she loves Zlatan. <laughs> it's her favorite player of all time. But, like, I, I still want to you know, talk about the moment. Um, it, it comes across as ignorance and elitism because of the fact of, as a white athlete, he can say those statements and he doesn't have to worry about the persecution, you know? Um, but for most black athletes, we are looked at as what we do both on the field and both what we do off the field. Our counterparts don't have that same, that, that, that same role, mostly. Some do, but mostly we don't. I mean, they don't. Zlatan can say, like, I'm an athlete. I'm not worried about politics. And not have no one will pay any attention. LeBron can't say that. You know, most Black athletes can't say that. Because when we are quiet about an issue, not only do we have the Black community looking at us and like, oh, well, he's quiet. We know why he's quiet, you know. Oh, he getting he getting bought out. He he sold out. But then when we speak up, we get so much ridicule and hate from the media and death threats from the media that is like, well, dang, what's the point of me speaking up? You know, case in point, look at a player like Pele. Um, when Pele was going through the nineteen, I think he just came back from the nineteen sixty six World Cup. He uh, this is when Brazil started going transitioning to a dic- dictatorship. And Pele made the famous incident of going to go be with the president, shaking hands with him. And a lot of his teammates turned their back on him. And, you know, he lost relationships with him as well because he never really came out and said, like, what the dictator is doing is bad. He was just like, he's the president of Brazil. I'm just going there to show respect. But he never really spoke out about the moment. And for someone like Zlatan to say, Is is you know, athlete had to say athlete, politician had to say politician. Yes, in a perfect world, but that doesn't work in our world. 
where politicians use sports as their base. You know, look at someone like Hitler. He used the 1933 Olympics to try to show why Germans were the most superior athletes in the world, and Jesse Owens proved them wrong. Alabama you know, hero. <laughs> you know, it, it's things like that. So you can't, you know, or when like Fox News told LeBron shut up and dribble. That doesn't work when these politicians want to get up here and use sports athletes to show why they are dominated in the world. You know, that that doesn't work. So I need, I, I would love for people like Zlatan to have that way of thinking to understand that you do have a platform and a base. If you don't want to use your base for what is there for, that's fine. That's on you. But don't imp- don't impose that way of thinking. Or if you're not comfortable with it, don't impose that way of thinking on someone else. You know, some people, you everyone has a role to fit in. You need to, you got to find your role and do what's best for you. Like me, for instance, I know I'm very good at talking about soccer content. I cannot do a podcast on stock market. That's not my <laughs> role. I'm not about to do it. So I'm not going to go out here and try. But what I am going to do is that if I see someone that is very good at doing stock marketing stuff, I'm going to ask them questions or I'm going to try to support them where I can. Not just be like, well, you're this, so you need to just focus on that. Because if that's the case, then why are we cooking? Because half of us ain't chefs. Hey, true. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, you're talking about, especially black athletes, there is a massive double standard that happens. And I guess let's keep the basketball analogy. I mean, there are probably 50 LeBrons that are opening schools that are funding kids to go to college that are getting kids out of horrible situations or at least making their life livable, uh, you know, for any race, for any gender, for anything. And then everybody will point to the one guy like, Oh, look at Kyrie, look at Kyrie Irving right there. What an idiot. What a dummy. He thinks the earth is flat. Right. And then er people will ignore the 50 LeBrons out there that are changing the world for the better and point to the one guy. And that always feels like it's, that's kind of the precipice, I guess, as a soccer thing, I'm a palace fan. Right. And recently Zaha came out and said, I don't want to kneel anymore. I think it's degrading. I don't feel like me kneeling is, you know, the right thing for me. He didn't tell his teammates to stop. He says, I'm not going to do it anymore. And people came out of the woodwork and said, aha, it was pointless. We all knew it was pointless. It was dumb. You should have never done it. And you're ruining our beautiful game. And I'm just like, that's not what he said. That's not what he said at all. (laughs) People love to draw their own conclusions about things. You know, when it comes to the, the basis of kneeling, I, it's very important to understand why people are kneeling, why kneeling started in the first place. If you are ever confused about why kneeling started, just type in Colin, Ka- Colin Kaepernick's conversation with um, Nate. I can't think of his name, but he was a U.S. soldier. Yes. Colin Kaepernick started off sitting on the bench during the national anthem. And then the U.S. soldier told him that's disrespectful. I would appreciate it more if you know. And then that's what Colin Kaepernick started kneeling. And then when he asked about it right after the game, he said, I am kneeling because of police brutality in the African-American community. That's why he was kneeling. 
It has nothing to do with the flag. It has nothing to do with the anthem. It has nothing to do because we don't like white people. I promise you, <laughs> nothing to do with that. For someone like Zaha to say that he doesn't want to kneel anymore, I understand what he's saying because of the fact of the Premier League itself hasn't done the necessary actions to enact change. They came on and said, make no room for racism. All this stuff. They made kneeling a mandatory thing. They tried to do it in 15 seconds, but there's never been a thing of where they've actually gone about trying to make change in these communities, you know, where footballers can get online and make abuse. I mean, get abuse. And these clubs will have the same statement, but it's never that enact change or where I remember the incident. It was Chelsea versus Tottenham, and was it Rudiger? I'm, I think it was Rudiger. Uh, it was a foul between him and uh, Hungman Song. Hungman Song got the red card. Rudiger turned his back, and the Spur fan was cussing, like cussing out, saying all kind of racist stuff to him. They caught it on tape. Like I remember, NBC Sports was like. They literally cut to the to the studio. It was like we can't show it to you because we know, like everyone knew what he was saying. Yeah. After the game, Spurs came out and said we can't prosecute the fan because we don't have video proof evidence. But it's moments like that where it's like you have it there, and you just choose not to because you are afraid of what the minority, what the majority is going to do with you, because you want to be right. Like, to be real with you, I've thought about it. There's no way how to stop internet trolls. It's going to happen. Yeah. But you can't crumble under the pressure of those trolls because you're afraid of being called out. Yeah. Because if that's the case, then you don't need to be in it. Let someone else do it. You know? like Once again, for Zaha, I totally understand it because he's not seeing the action of what his league is doing. Or the club, so I understand it. And plus, it has became, it has became an action that's kind of just like a gesture now, because you have people who don't mean it in their heart doing it. You know, you you have people in their heart that don't care for black people doing it, and you can tell. Some will just kneel there, tie their shoe, mess with their socks, fix their kit. As soon as they get up. They brush their knees off. They don't care. You know, they don't feel it. And I don't expect for them to feel it because if you've never been around black people besides on the soccer field, you never will understand what black people go through. True. You know, it's the same thing as if, like, if me and you went to Germany, you know, when they did Holocaust awareness something, we don't understand it because we've never been in that situation before. So we have to open our eyes and hearts and minds to be educated about it so we can be sympathetic and empathetic to what they're saying and what they are doing, you know? But for those idiots that like to say, well, Zaha's not doing it, then we don't need to be doing it because it's totally stupid, they never really care in the first place. Those are the kind of people that want to just separate sports and politics, but then love to have the national anthem play before games yeah like it don't make sense so i talked to mikey lopez about this which 
uh, this was a couple weeks ago, and he is one of the head people with Next Gen United, which is basically trying to get soccer to everybody. He wants to make it available for everybody, which, you know, really lines up with what Jay said and that he wants to get soccer everywhere. Anyway, past that, he, I mentioned, I asked him about the kneeling of the national anthem because the very first game against Memphis, the whole team did it. And I asked him, I was like, what was the conversation in the locker room? Was there convincing of people? Was everybody on board? Was there any kind of teaching that had to happen? And he was like, no, everybody was on board with it. There are some people who stopped kneeling before, uh, I guess, when other people were not doing it anymore. But there was no question that they had their back. Um, you know, it's like the kneeling became a thing that, like you said, a lot of people just did it. And other people said, I have your back. I love you. Like, I love you to death, you know, but for me, I still want to, you know, stand, put my hand over my heart and do the national anthem. But when it first happened, everybody on the field kneeled and me being from Alabama, from a rural area, man, I was scared to death. I sat there. I was like, oh, what are these white rednecks about to do? <laughs> and lo and behold, I look across to the student or it's a student. Wow. The supporters section, the supporters group, and half of them kneeled along with them. And oh. there were other people that were in the homestands that are just general uh, showed up to the game because we thought it'd be fun. They don't have any real interest or real investment in the club besides they bought that ticket that day. Some of them did it along with it and it blew my mind. And I asked him about it. I was like, did you, how did you feel about the fans doing that? And he was like, I had no clue. And I had no idea that happened. That's awesome to hear. But for me, I was shocked. I was like, this is happening in, in Birmingham, Alabama. And I guess my own perspective of Birmingham is a little skewed because I know Birmingham is one of the most progressive places on the planet because we have a horrible past i mean birmingham and just alabama's past is disgusting and i think because of that people want to change it for the better but there was still that thought in the back of my mind of man what are these folks going to do I'm oh man i i told them look dude being in richmond the capital of the confederacy where we still have it just got reported today, matter of fact, um, we've had 71 Confederate statues removed in the state out of a possible 260. Like, that's insane that yeah. we have that many Confederate statues to somebody, to people that lost the war. They're not like they won, they lost. Yeah. That's another point for a different day. But <laughs> um, at like Richmond Kickers games, I personally, I, I don't kneel, you know, just because one, I'm too big. And once I go down, I'm down. I ain't get it back up. I, I had to, that was a life decision. I had to make early on. <laughs> once I'm down, I'm down. I, it's going to be another 10 minutes before I get back up. Um, So I stand there with my fist up in the air. And when I first did it, my fist was like right beside my body, like real close like this. Cause I was like, man, like I'm really, cause I was, once again, it was me, my co-host Shanir, and this older black guy named Charles. We're the only three that are in the supporters group that are black. I mean, of course, you know, my wife, Shanir's wife, that makes it five. Um, but there's only like three black men. 
And Shanira couldn't make it to games all the time because he's a carpenter and Charles is a uh, radio host. So I'm, I'm using every game. So I will have my fist real close to my chest. And then I don't know what happened. Then over the point of the year, I was just like, you know what? It is what it is. Like, I'm was standing there proud, proud that I lift my fist all the way up in the air. And one of the other supporters came to me and put his hand on my shoulder. And he put his fist in the air. And it was like that moment of like, you know, because I, I was so scared of like, what are every what is everyone thinking about me? Like, what is everyone saying about me? This black man standing there with his fist up. You know, I know like I know they're thinking something like I want to know what. But it was that moment where he put his hand on my shoulder to let me know, like, yo, I got your back no matter what. Like I, I'm I'm here with you. And those are like that would like I know I've been saying all the podcast, but like actions. Yeah. Like actions speak so much more loud than the words because when I can look into the stands. And I've talked to players on the team. I've talked to, you know, Devontae and Mumbai. And they said, like, when we look into the stands and we see you, some of you guys standing there with your fist up in the air, or you guys, you know, stand there with the Black Lives Matter TIFO and things like that, it makes us feel like we're accepted and we're wanted because we know that you guys have our backs no matter what, you know? And like I'll say it again, like actions speak louder than words. Yeah. I mean, for me, seeing a bunch of people take the knee with the fist in the air that weren't players, because most of our players are not from America. I mean, some of them, uh, okay, I'd say it's about 50 50. Uh, yeah. At least our starting, our starting 11 is about 50 50 of people from America. And I can vividly remember looking down in the support group and there's a guy who comes to every single game. Love is due to death. He's probably, if I'm being generous around 60, he's a 60 year old white dude. And he was the first one to hit a knee. And that was the moment for me that I was like, yo, it's different here. Like this is real. This isn't just a, uh, Oh, the supporter section wants to look good on pitchers. It was every game, and he was the first one. There was no hesitant, you know, no hesitation whatsoever. And for me, that was awesome because I was like, it's changing. There is some real change going on, which is what was tragic about this last summer because of what caused it, but the fact that it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, it's it's a change that's been meaning to come. You know, it's something to where – Everyone has a part to play in it, but your part to play in it can be positive. It doesn't have to be looked at as a chore. Right. You know, I, I think about it like this. Do you want to be remembered in history as the person that stood in the way of change and positive change? Or do you want to be looked at as the person that helped push this change to a broader light and, you know, be in the positive perspective of it. And do, like, do you want to, do you want your kids to remember you as the racist grandpa that was like, mm, I don't like that. I don't like they act, talking about their rights. Or do you want to remember it as the guy that went out there and was like, you know what? I, what they're saying is not wrong. Even though I might not experience it, if they do and it's not hurting no one else, then yeah, I'm going to try to help you out with it. For sure. I mean, that was, uh, Oh, I just had a great thought, but I totally lost it. Oh, 
it's back. So I did a podcast uh, a while, or I guess about a week ago with some guys from Birmingham, England. And I mentioned that for this podcast, I received hate um, for because I was talking about Brazilian football. And I asked uh, Bruno Lapa, who's from Brazil, I was because the his youth academy a couple weeks before I interviewed him got into this massive brawl where a dude came out of out of nowhere from the stands and kicked another dude in the chest and I was like I was like so it's like this regular like I've, I've never been to Brazil like it's maybe not regular is the right word to use I was like but is that something that's super unusual or is that like the first time and I got a lot of hate people like like you ignorant southerner you have no idea what you're talking about and this and that and i realized that people heard my voice and just assumed that i was going to be hateful which i feel like is what i was talking about with birmingham and even richmond i feel like people especially in the south are trying extra hard to make a difference because the past is so ugly and for everybody they're trying to overcome just simple stereotypes of people from the south are racist and hateful so people almost overcompensate which is totally fine um to make that difference and i guess it's nice to see that people are trying especially since the past is so ugly yeah i mean it's the thing about you know being from the south like i even people i I've had to tell a lot of my friends because I got a lot of family up in New York and I tell them all the time, like, not every person you meet in the South is racist. Yeah. Are there racists in the South? Yes, 100%. I'm not going to lie to you. They are like, when it comes to racism, they get an A. <laughs> <laughs> but, for and there are, the, there are some that when you meet them, they are like family. But this whole thing about it is, is like, those people that I tell them like they treat you like family is because I know like their actions speak louder than what their words do 100%. And, you know, it's just one of the things that we fall into. You know, people are gonna hear your voice all the time and they're gonna be like, oh, Southern, racist, you know? Yeah. But don't ever let that stop you from doing what you're doing or let or allow that to stop you from caring about the things you wanna care about, you know? Like me, for instance, I work in an alternative school. I tell people that, and they're like looking at me like, you work with the worst of the worst. You work, like the first thing they do is always, oh. Like, and I tell them all the time, like, yo, these kids are no different than any other high school kids. It's just the thing about it is, is like at some point in their life, they didn't have someone that just sat there with them and tried to help them to not avoid the mistake. We've all been in that situation. I don't care how old you are, where you're from, We've all had that one moment in our school career that if we went left instead of right, we would have been in that same exact predicament, you know? It's just the thing about it is Um, So it's pretty much comes down to like in school, you can either go left or you can go right. And growing up as kids is like, we've all had that decision we had to make where if we don't get it right, we get it ended up in that same predicament in an alternative school 
people looking down on us, making, you know, harsh decisions about us for the rest of our life, you know, but your actions can speak so much louder than what your circumstance is. You know, you just, every day you have to work and think about it in terms of like, what do I want to be remembered for? What's the impact I want to have? That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. So if you're wondering what just happened there, there was a, hopefully I'll edit this out. Hopefully I'll remember to do that. Editor Kaler <laughs> remembered to edit that, but there's a weird pause in there that his mic went muted, but it's fine. Um, We'll hopefully get it fixed. If not, that you just heard that. this could be everyone's warning that you need to put more money into school so we can have better laptops <laughs> man you i mean you're talking about teaching i mean talking about working at alternative school uh and i'll tell like, you're talking about the old racist uh grandpa grandma whatever i had i told one of my family members i was like yeah i love working in these low SES schools or you know, they're fantastic and the kids are awesome. And when it's always like, oh, I went to school or I'm taught at a low SES school, it's always bless your heart. And I'm like, no, don't bless your heart me. These are good kids. Like, <laughs> like, like, yo, these kids, people really, these kids are like horrible people. I'm like, no, these kids are hilarious. They are like, yo, these kids will keep it real with you. And you just got to sit there and be like, you know what? You're right. You're right. That some of those. <laughs> I there was as soon as I walked in and like I said I was the only a lot of time I'm usually the only white kid in there the only white dude in there and some of these kids will just come up there and they will just destroy me on the way I dress the amount of times I, I, there was one day where I went and bought shoes directly afterward because probably about a group of 20 kids were just wrecking my shoe game and I'm like all right you know what we're <laughs> we're buying new shoes <laughs> but yeah I mean they're hysterical. They are absolutely the whole time. I was like, dang, that kind of hurts, but it's funny though. <laughs> yeah, the thing about it is, it's not like they're doing it to be mean. I mean, maybe one or two are. Well, one or two are probably doing it. <laughs> but the rest are really just trying to see like how tough you are. And once you show them like you're you're like you're like you're not no punk, they love you. Yeah. They love you, man. Like I remember my first year of teaching. I've been teaching for about six years now, man. My first year of teaching. I had like this old beat up green Volvo that had like a hole in the bottom of it. And the kids used to rip me, like rip me every day. They were like, oh, Mr. Boy, you driving that beat up car. How are you going to make it in the rain? I was like, I'm going to take your bike one day and just ride. The <laughs> <laughs> but the kids loved me because they knew like when they didn't see my car, they knew like, oh, dang, Mr. Barnes not here. I don't know who, I don't want to go to class. Because like they loved me because, and they loved the car. So like the, when I got a new car, they were like, what happened to the balls? Oh, where the balls are at? I was like, no, man, I had to let it go. It, it got filled up with too much rainwater. You know, but it's like those moments there, you build those connections with kids and it's like, they love you forever for it. Which is what I'm hoping happens, I guess, to tie full circle. When these teams start getting involved with the community, I mean, just showing that you care, just showing that, hey, you can throw it right back, right along with them. You can toss it right back at them. Man, those kids are going to love you. And that doesn't matter if they're, they're, they're white, they're black. It doesn't matter if they're Asian, Mexican, anything. It doesn't matter who they are. They're going to absolutely love that you're putting in the effort and that you can just banter with them. I mean, it's, it's yeah. if you can throw it back, man, you're the favorite teacher. You're the best teacher of all time. That's it, man. Just 
like this soccer clothes. Just show you care. Just put in the just put in the time. It is not gonna just. It's not. Gonna, it's not like a timetable. It's not like if you put in a month worth of work, you're gonna get three months worth of benefits for it. Just put in the time. If you do it, we're right there. We want to love the game. We want to embrace the game. We just need these clubs to come be, meet us where we're at. For sure. So before we go off, all right, I'm gonna ask you to name. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> three things that you want to see your local club uh, or any club do in their community just top three things off the top of your head uh, the first thing would be dedicated after school programs um in terms of you don't have to have like your own soccer sessions and stuff like that you know some clubs can do it some clubs can't but partnering with inner city schools to help build the game of soccer uh, would be tremendous um, secondly, I would love to see you uh, colleges that are close to HBCUs partner with the, the like the School of Business or the Liberal Arts Program um, to give those students an opportunity to, to to get a foot in the door. You know, because a lot of people in HBCUs don't have that connection. You know, when it comes to business, it's not about what you know; it's about who you know. And a lot of us don't know people to, you know, get our foot in the door and break down those those barriers. Um, and the third thing I, I would love to see is a lot of these clubs, when they have these players, um, offer them the opportunity to go back to school and finish their education, whether it be at a local community college or a four-year university, you know, and all this stuff partners back with each other, you know? One one builds off of the other, you know, because when a lot of these players do retire, and some of these players in lower league soccer retire at 26, 27, and a lot of them don't have the proper skills needed to go succeed and make other changes, you know? And, and that would be great to see Clubs Partner with them do that. I love the last one. I mean, I know that's something that's been in discussions that's been talked about a lot recently. Hope it happens. It needs to happen. Uh, for your second point, the I'm gonna always do this wrong. HBCU always get like in my mind dyslexia and just throw stuff around. But um, I'm, I guess shameless plug, but it's not for me. I'm not making any money, and I don't think they're making money from it either. But uh, check out Two Cent FC's shirts and hoodies that they're doing with the support uh, HBCU. And also, it's awesome merch. It looks awesome. And it's going to a great cause, so absolutely check that out. Yeah, they're they're awesome people, man. Uh, I love I love all the stuff they do. They're just fantastic group. Yeah, I can check them out on Twitter. Uh, last thing, let you go. Where can they find you? And where can they find all your podcasts and uh, your Twitter and stuff? Um, you can follow me personally on Twitter at Yogi McLovin. Um, I talk about any and everything. Like I've said before, I can be a black soccer revolutionary and then turn the Twitter off the dark anywhere before 10 30 AM. It just depends on what's on my mind that day. I'm usually like the soccer comedian. Like I make jokes about me and everything. Um, <laughs> you can follow the podcast at river city 93 on Instagram and Twitter. Um, we're kind of starting to pick back up river city 93, which follows the Richmond kickers. Um, Cause the season's starting to pick up. So we're starting to do that a little bit more. 
Um, can I kick it? Um, does it have a Instagram or a social media is all under River City 93, but you can follow the podcast. Can I kick it? River City 93 on all podcast apps, anything like that. All right. Hey, Elliot, you're awesome. I cannot thank you enough for coming on. I mean, I've been I've been dreaming of being able to do this for a while now. So I cannot thank you enough for coming on, man. Oh, no problem, man. Thank you for having me on, man. I I I, I'm glad you wanted to do it, man. <laughs> hey, I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I cannot thank Elliot enough for coming on. I, dude is awesome. I love hearing him talk. His podcast is amazing. Can I kick it? I mean, River City 93 is also fantastic. I'm just not a Richmond fan, so I don't really listen to it as much as Can I Kick It? But Can I Kick It is a must-listen. I recommend any soccer fan in the world to listen to it, especially if you want to, I guess, open your eyes to some stuff. Because I've mentioned it a lot, that there's a lot of things I just wasn't aware of until I listened to them speak. And I think that's healthy. It's really healthy to go out there and, you know, hear a different perspective on things. But thank you guys so much for listening. If... You want some more content coming up tomorrow? I should be releasing a video with uh, goalkeeper Trevor Spangenberg. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you guys again for listening and keep hammering on.